Welcome to the second series of the podcast, Rewired. Much has happened since series one in the debate around a universal basic income grant in South Africa. In this series, we unpack some of the debates that have developed. We look at the politics behind the scenes, the numbers that people are arguing about, and we invite captains of industry, intellectuals, academics, and activists to put forward the ideas why the basic income grant is the one policy that we need to take us from where we are as a country to where we need to be. Join me, Isabel Fry, on Rewired, the podcast of choice that allows you to be part of the conversation on a basic income grant. Ayanda Sishi, welcome to our studio today as we talk about youth and gender activism and the impact that a basic income grant could make on the structural inequalities that face us in South Africa. Thank you very much for inviting me, Isabel. We're also joined in studio by Amakle Nguenya, SPI's social security researcher, and Kutso Makobela, a current intern working on the 350 grant movie that we're making at SPI. Greetings. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Ayanda, whenever you enter a room, I know that positive disruption is here. So we're incredibly happy to have you in the studio today. Thank you for your time. And please tell our listeners who Ayanda is and what drives you. Positive disruption. I absolutely love that. I'm going to use that in my bio. I'm a positive disruptor. Yes, that is what I am. Isabel pretty much summed me up in a nutshell. Uh, Ayanda Sishi Wigzel is a positive disruptor. I am a political commentator, I analyze social media, and I also work for an NGO called Youth Lab. Uh, my work basically defines who I am. I am a big believer in helping people and making sure that our government uh, sticks to their promises that they've made, albeit through the social um, contract that we have uh, with the citizens of the people. And I just make sure that people do their jobs accordingly. And if they are not, I'm there to speak power to truth. And I believe that that is what I was put on this earth to do. Uh, as I under Sishi Wigzel, um, my mother will always say that, you know, I under just consistently speaks and does not stop speaking until she gets the job done. And that uh, I'm very grateful for, that I get to do that in my work. I'm very grateful that I get to meet people who also think like me um, and, and be able to to basically gather together and put our resources forward to make sure that people are actually living and living dignified lives. If, if anything, that is my goal, to make sure that people live lives, for, to fulfill the lives that they want to live and to live with dignity and to live with respect in the way that they want to do it, make sure that no one's hurting anybody, to make sure that everybody can, yeah, live. That is my goal. That is my ultimate goal, to live life with dignity. And if anything, um, the work that I do, especially with young people, speaks to that, to make sure that people have access, people have information, so that they can go and live their lives accordingly. And yeah, that's the goal. And that's me in a nutshell. Thank you very much. I think that that principle, that value of dignity is so critical. Um, and it's something that although it's a primary foundation of our constitution, we often forget in the cut and thrust of, of living um, and, and just struggling to live. We forget that the aim is a life of dignity and a life of, of bliss and fulfillment. Exactly, exactly. Dignity is something that I hold dear to me, um, integrity, dignity over 
everything, living a life that is ethical over everything. And the way that we move in this country, we have to move with dignity because if we don't, the repercussions of that are so incredibly dire. And we see that every single day. Uh, when we are driving and we see people begging on the side of the road, uh, when we see groups of people who are sitting in the corner of the streets looking for work, that, that, that does not speak to a dignified society. If anything, it speaks to a society that is so wholeheartedly unequal. And, you know, the, the, the integrity of that society then begins to diminish as soon as we remove the dignity of people. And, once we sort that out, sort out a way in which people can actually live the lives that they want to live in the country that they want to live in, then I think that we'll be able to start to see change happening in this country. But as it stands right now, people need to fight for the most basic of things, the most basic of things that we are meant to be getting from our government, but that we are meant to be getting from our leaders in general, from society, and we're just absolutely not getting that. And that's where I think then the activism comes in. That's where the fight then comes in. Because in 1994, the fight for dignity didn't end there. What happened is that power shifted. And what we do with that power really resonates with how we see our society right now and where young people are sitting right now. We are not in a dignified space. Absolutely not. We need to fight for our dignity. Ayanda, today we're talking about a universal basic income grant or guarantee and why this could be a transformative catalyst for South Africa. In this week, we saw the 2022 third quarter unemployment stats released. And while the headlines celebrated a 1% drop in unemployment to 43%, we also have to recognize for the rest of sub-Saharan Africa, the unemployment rate is 6.6%. For Asia, it's 4%. According to our analysis, South Africa is in a deep crisis. And for youth and black women, the rate is astounding. 70% unemployment for 15 to 24-year-olds, 50% unemployment for 25 to 34-year-olds, and millions of young people are not in employment, education, or training. Black African women have an unemployment rate that's 4% higher than women of any other racial categorization. We also know that returns on education are high, with unemployment for graduates being only 2.9%. So my question is, do you think that a universal basic income as an unconditional monthly cash payment to all, taxed back from those who can afford it, would be able to disrupt the entrenched marginalization of people living with structural perpetual unemployment and why? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. When I heard that there was even a concept of the universal basic income grant, I was in university in 2016 in, in sociology. And my lecturer asked us what our society would look like if we had a grant system that was implemented in 1994, a system where everybody was included. And many people pointed out that, you know, maybe there'll be structural, um, the, the structure and the infrastructure of our country would look different. Maybe there'll be more entertainment and more better town planning in our townships. Maybe we would have space to actually entertain ourselves and be children. 
And that really resonated with me. And so when entering into Youth Lab and knowing that uh, Youth Lab has a relationship um, with SPY and, and with FES, that was my first point, uh, um, my, my first goal, rather, was to make sure that I speak about the Universal Basic Income Grant because grants to me are so important. Even the grants that we have already in place are so important because I've literally seen the change that it can bring to a person's life. I come from KZN, uh, from a small uh, village, Guadalangezwa, and there I lived on a, on a university campus, the University of Zululand. And there is a lot of unemployment, a lot of unemployment. That um, So I lived and I grew up around that unemployment. And so seeing people have access to the child grant when that happened um, around 2002, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a very short amount of money, but all of a sudden there was an increase. And I've always wondered, why did they increase that money? Only to then find out when I went to university that there was research that was done by a, a sociology professor and a whole bunch of, of social workers who found out that actually people need that, 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 that little money to be increased due to the fact that they have to pay for travel to get that money at the post office. They have to pay then for bread, for water, for electricity, for nappies. And at that time, it was 180 rands. So about 50 rands of that money would be then spent on just travel alone, which then means that there's very little money to then carry on for the rest of the month that will see you until the next month that you get the social grants, which then added, which then meant that governments bought in a whole bunch of um, trucks and, and, and a service provider who we then know that um, the service provider that was um, that ended I think around um, two, 2013 or 14 if I'm not mistaken because of the corruption that was happening with that service provider but they realized um, that you need to bring the social grant to people instead of having people have to go and fetch it and so I saw a value in that but before I did my research before I went to university I could see that with my own eyes just the change that happened in right in front of my eyes. So that, that alone, you don't need to go to university space in order to see the change that happens when you put money into people's hands. And that is the whole crux of the matter for me. People can determine their own futures. If you put money into their hands, they can make a difference for themselves. What government needs to do is create a conducive environment and meet people where they are so that they can flourish in the places that they live. That is what apartheid took away from us. It took away the dignity for black people to flourish where they live. They had to move into economic spaces where white people were flourishing. And we see that in the geographical makeup of this country. And so in order to change that, we need to put resources back into people's hands. Just like how when the state um, the state's owned enterprises were being made and were being invented in 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 in, in, in the 50s and the 60s with, with your ESCOMs and your Suntimes and your Bankops at, during that time, they were putting resources into people's hands in order to build the state. So it bothers me. The mind boggles when we have to fight with our own governments, the government of the people 
in order for them to force them, their hand, which is where I honestly think that we are at this point because we can speak nice to government officials all we want, but at the end of the day, they are going back to their comfortable offices, their comfortable spaces, and they are not living the reality that majority of South Africans are living. And that is why I'm such a firm believer in a universal basic income grant, a basic income grant that every single person can have access to because you don't know what people's circumstances are, especially with the economy that we're seeing right now. We just simply do not know. It is, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but what we do know is that we can prepare now to make sure that people are protected, to have a dignity floor for people, just a simple dignity floor that won't cost government as much because this is what they're contractually obligated to do for us, to give us resources in our hands so that we can change our circumstances. And so that is what I, I honestly believe in. I firmly believe in the universal basic income grants just as a ways for people to change their own circumstances, if anything, because most, some people in this country do have that privilege to change, to change the circumstances in which they live in, but majority of us do not, we do not. And so having that access to do that on your own terms is where the dignity comes in. And, if the, uni and the Universal Basic Income Grants has been proven that it can actually do that. Studies have shown that the grants that we have already are changing people's lives, albeit the money is very little and it does need to be increased without a shadow of a doubt. But those people who are already having access to that their lives are a little bit better because of that. So why would we not want to increase that level of, of resource giving? Why would we not want to help people more instead of saying that South Africans need to fend for themselves and get jobs which honestly, are, after the statistics that you've read, are just simply not there? That was very um, touching. And <laughs> yes, so it's um, it's... It's good that you're talking from a place of um, relate relatability. You're relating to these stories. You're not just speaking from an educated perspective. So I like that um, you also mentioned young people. So there's a lady um, called Ihaduru Anderson. She made a research going into perspectives of South African youth, and she found that young people in South Africa are actually seen as victims as their efforts um, and sacrifices for liberation are less appreciated by the present setup in that they still experience poverty and joblessness. So how do you think that can be changed without, um, you did mention the UBIG, but like what other ways do you feel that are there for the youth out there? So in the African context, there's always been this intergenerational conflict that has existed if we look at our, the structure of our societies and the way that um, paternalism works. And if we look at the history of our country, especially with the advent of mining and how that separated families and caused a generational uh, mix and a generational conflict to actually occur where young men had to go out into the mines and old men stayed behind. And then the young men had to come and supply their villages with money to make sure that, you know, they can pay the wife tax, they can pay the hut tax. The wife tax and the hut tax was implemented to make sure that we get the young black work workforce into the mines. 
So that has always been this conflict, this generational conflict that has existed between the young generation and the old generation. And that has seeped into our society right now. And so it makes sense when you say that young people's sacrifices are not seen as that because the notion is that young people must sacrifice. We have to sacrifice. That has been the history. Young people have been sacrificing, which led to how we see family structure today with, with young men then going into the mines. We see young people sacrificing in 1976 when they went to go march against the apartheid government and then had to go into exile again. And we see young people, 16, 17, as young as 21, being hung in the gallows by the apartheid government. We see in 1994, young people saying, include us in our government, but now we have to be led by those who are seen to be more mature, who are seen to be more knowledgeable, because how can a young person be knowledgeable? You, do not, you haven't lived long on this earth. These are the perceptions that we are dealing with. Cut to 2015 and the advent of Fees Must Fall, we literally saw higher minister, a minister of higher education, um, and, and, and science and technology, Bladen Zimande, laugh and say, hashtag, students must fall. These are the generational conflicts that we are dealing with. And that question is a very good one because how the UBIG then enters into that space is that, again, we have the ability to resource young people to make sure that they have money in their hands to change their circumstances. But then you have people in government who say that, no, you can't handle this. You don't know what it is that you're talking about. So we can protest. We can be shot with tear gas. You know, you can be coming out of a doctor's office and a stray bullet is going to find you. But those sacrifices are not seen as that. We will be called entitled, even though we know for a fact that there is a social contract that we have entered into a tacit contract that we've entered into government. And I'm going to always go back to this, that government has to provide the resources. They have to make sure that our society and the environment in which we exist in is conducive for us to live and fulfill our dreams and to live a dignified life, not just to survive, which is what we are finding a lot of young people doing. We are just surviving day by day. We know that there is huge food insecurity in this country. The food insecurity is not caused by a lack of food. It's caused by the fact that people cannot afford to buy just a basic grocery basket. We've seen in Kabecha, we, I, I read a story uh, about a young woman who has to feed her baby cool drink, fizzy drinks, because she can't afford to buy food for herself and she can't breastfeed, you know, which then means that the child is then malnourished. These are the situations that young people are facing and are having to grapple with at a very young age. I read another story as well of young people actually having a stock fell for food. So in schools, if one person receives a meal, then they will cut that meal in half so that the next kid will have a bigger portion of that meal so that they'll be able to feed themselves. 
and these are the these are the, the 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 things that young people are doing in order to fix the situations that they're in but why is it that they have to think creatively like that when the government can actually put in a ubig to make sure that people who are between the ages of 18 and 59 have access to an income to make sure that those children don't have to come up with a stock fell within the nutritional program that already exists in school, that is already being capacitated by government. That, that, that program is being turned into a stock fell to make sure that kids are fed. That's, that is not a dignified society. A dignified society does not force children to think for themselves in order to feed themselves. That's not a dignified society. That is not what we were promised in the Freedom Charter in 1955 in Cliptown. So when it comes to a UBIG and how that will affect young lives, it will affect them greatly, absolutely. Because when you look at a household where most households in South Africa are headed by women, uh, 42% of households are led by women in this country, yet young, yet black women make up the most unemployed, you know, the most unemployed group in the country. And so what a UBIG would do is make sure that those homes and those households are resourced enough for them to at least afford food. The adults there can afford to actually go and job seek because you know that if you have access to a grant, you have a better chance of finding a job than those who don't have access to a grant because looking for work costs money. Youth Capital did a study that shows that it costs 938 rands to look for work if you're a young person. That's not a person who has a job. That's a person who is looking. That's 938 rands. What a difference a UBIG would make if that young person had access to a universal basic income grant. And so it would put them in a better position for them to actually look for work. But now our problem is that we have a government that says we need to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps. What bootstraps do we have as young people? We have no shoelaces. Some of us don't even have boots to pick ourselves up by because the adults in our lives are not working. They don't have access to resources, which means that the young people in turn are not going to have access to resources, which is why a UBIG is so incredibly important, even to those who are lucky enough to get into university which is so difficult for majority of people in this country, which means that school fees are also going to be hiked up, which means that university fees are going to be hiked up. And we're going to see the cyclical protesting happen again and again and again because people don't have access to resources. What a difference a UBIG would make for those students who can afford to have textbooks, who can afford to buy food for themselves, and who can afford to take care of themselves while they are studying in order to make their, their lives better for them and those who are around them. So UBIG is incredibly important for young people. But what's important is that government needs to stop seeing us as people who are against them, but rather work with us. Because at the end of the day, we are experts of our own lived experiences. And we are the only people who can explain to the government who are incredibly privileged and are earning salaries up to 1 million rand a year, which is, is something that most South Africans will never see in their lifetime. We are the only ones who are experts enough to explain to them 
what is going on in our lives and how it is that they can resource us and meet us where we are. Thank you for that. Um, you keep emphasizing dignity. So it sounds like um, a human rights based approach is the best way to go about. So I'll just pass on to my colleague Amakle. Um, thank you so much for that, Ayanda. Um, thank you so much for pointing out the, the, the struggles that our young people are currently living, um, under. And I think the hierarchy of those with privilege versus those without is significantly more abysmal when disaggregated according to gender. And you did highlight that they are woman headed households. So women actually face more struggles. Um, and, um, in terms of, um, some of the, Groups, well, it's, it's evident that groups face greater obstacles to upward mobility than others in South Africa. So, um, how do you see this skills shortage or mismatch affecting the girl child in future when women are currently struggling right now in the present to find formal employment? It's hectic. I, I can't even state how dire the situation is. We had a, a policy group uh, discussion with youth from Khopanong in Dobsonville, Soweto, and youth from Alexandra. Most of our group was made up of women, young girls. And what came out of that policy discussion, we were discussing, we were discussing um, the national youth policy and how the national youth policy is actually meant to help you and you know, resource you in order for you to, to lead, again, a dignified life. And what we come to find is that most people don't even know what's going on. They didn't even know that there was a youth policy. They didn't even know that there was a National Youth Development Agency. They didn't even know that, you know, they knew that there was a child grant, but most people are just like, you know, we don't, know, we don't even know if we can pass the means test. And the SASA office was right next door to the to, to Hopanong Hall where we were actually having these discussions in Soweto. And that really struck a chord with me because what we see more than ever is that young girls and women are simply left out of the equation in a, in, when it comes to making meaningful impact. But when we need to be visible, when government needs to be seen in spaces, then all of a sudden... We are for women. We are for girls. So aesthetically, you know, Women's Day, 16 Days of Activism, Youth Day, I can count the special days that government has where, you know, they say that they are not leaving anyone behind. But the statistics speak for themselves. We are leaving more than half of the country behind when it comes to jobs, when it comes to skills, when it comes to access to education. And most of those people who are left behind are young black girls. That's just a fact. But it's a fact that is very accepted by society. It's a fact that is accepted by our government. When we look at the leadership structure of not only just our government, but even our political organizations, our political parties as well. Where are women? They are not there. They are not seen. They are not visible. 
they are not decision makers. And this bleeds into our economy. It bleeds into the skills that you're speaking to. Because even though in universities, statistically, it's about 50-50, they are, uh, I think women make up a little bit more of the statistics than, than men in terms of population in universities. But when we look at those who are getting jobs, I'm a daughter. It's men. Men are the ones who are being employed. And that speaks to the patriarchal society that we live in. That patriarchy still rules above everything. That intersectionality, where it matters, is not being implemented. Because those who, are, who have been put in power to represent us are not doing what it is that they're supposed to do, which is part of the reason why I have a problem then when it comes to representational politics. Because when we speak, when political parties speak about gender parity um, and speak about, you know, while we have here are our women in parliament and we have 50%, even though none of them actually have 50%, then where is that making a difference in the question that you've just um, um, posed to me? Where is the skill? Where are the, the young girls that are being skilled? Where are they? They are not there because we are not skilling young girls. We are leaving them behind. And part of that being left behind is because our economy is not structured in a way that can absorb us all. We did not change our, we changed our economy in name. And a lot of institutions we actually changed in name, but intrinsically, the way that they operate, operates to leave out a large group of people. And women and children are, exist at that intersection where we are disproportionately affected by the decision-making processes that have come from those who are our political principles. And so when I, I look at the squabbles that are happening right now, the, the contention of, of, of uh, the, the contestation rather of power across all political organizations, not even just the ruling party, across all political organizations. I find it to be very hollow when they say that, you know, here are the women who are leading us, you know, and you see a whole panel of them come 9th of, 9th of August. So like, where were these people, you know, throughout the whole year? It's not meaningful. It's not meaningful. And we see that in the results. We see that in the way that grants are distributed or even the way grants are spoken about. Because grants, most grant recipients are young black women. And the way that we speak about young black women is abysmal, it's harrowing. We have no respect at all for the situations that they've been put under and the environments that they grew up in, even though they are not the ones who are, who are the political principles, who have made these decisions um, in the environments and the society that we grew up in. It's not safe. You know, if, if we have not been raped, we count ourselves as lucky. But we've all experienced some sort of violence that comes from being in this patriarchal society. And it shows in the numbers. It shows in the gap it shows in the lack of skills that 
and, and I won't say a lack of skills, but I'll say a lack of hiring black women because we have to fight twice as hard as men in order to be in the same spaces and to be taken seriously. And that is just the same with the conversation of Ubig. Because then you hear perceptions that, oh, well, girls, and this is my favorite one that I had to fight really hard in university, that people are going to take the grant money and they're going to use it to buy weaves. That is something that came up in an actual government report when discussing the reasons why it is that people are not accessing the grant. They're saying that, no, well, well they're going to use it for, to, 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 to buy the weave. And to me, that, that really shocked me the most because it means that we as young black women, we're not supposed to make ourselves beautiful. We're not supposed to feel beautiful. So what if I take 30 rands of my 180 rand and I go ask somebody to go and sew in a weave? There's nothing wrong with that because that is where the dignity comes in. But now the problem is that we do not deserve to have that dignity because society continues to tell black women that we need to suffer and at the same time say that we are strong and at the same time say, say that seeing Bogot, I mean, I'm not a rock. I'm a very soft person. I'm very soft. I need love. I do not need, you know, to be a hard rock. It's very difficult to be hard, but we are forced to be hard as black women in this country because of the environment that we grow up in, the disregard from birth, from birth, even in our public hospitals, obstetrics violence. So you're being birthed into the violence from your mothers and your grandmothers and your great grandmothers. Just the cyclical violence that continues to be to, 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 to be deposed and to be imposed on black women's bodies. That is where the, what your your question that that is where the, the crux of the matter lies it lies in the fact that black women are not seen as deserving of dignity and respect and which is why we see the skills shortage it's why we see the fight the fight against giving people money in their actual hands and to resource them heaven forbid you give a black woman money the first thing she's going to do is get a weave that those are the perceptions which we are continuing to fight to this day in educated spaces, in, 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 in colloquial spaces, in spaces where we are just having frank conversations, even in government spaces as well. We hear the same sentiments. How dare you speak about a universal basic income grant because they're just going to take it and squander it rather just give people jobs. Where are these jobs coming from? Where are these jobs coming from? Because they're not going to fall from the sky. But what we can have is a universal basic income grant that can make sure that people are resourced enough and are taken care of enough until they find that work. Ayanda, I think that's such an interesting perspective about how women are, women's bodies are seen as instruments. One of the ways from a policy perspective that this came through very clearly to me was when the caregiver's grant after that was introduced at COVID came to an end after the six months women were not entitled to receive the 350 grant because their names were on the list as caregivers. And so we went to the presidency and said, but women are, are rights holders in their own capacity. Um, and we were told, but they had been receiving a caregiver's grant. So you're seen for your reproductive care and function, and that is it. 
whether or not you have your own needs. That was completely invisible. And the policymakers we were talking to said, well, how much more do they want? As if an individual had their own rights. This is the end of part one of episode three with Ayanda Sishi. Join us for part two as Ayanda talks to us about the radicalized youth politics and the basic income grant. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.